0: Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. Hello, and thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Health Mystery Solved. I'm Ina Toppler, and I'm so excited that you're joining me today. On episode 57, a few weeks ago, I did an Ask Ina show, and we chatted about some of your pressing immune questions. Thank you for all of the wonderful feedback I got from you on that episode. And since announcing that I will be doing more Ask Ina episodes, I got a flood of emails with questions that you wanted answered on the coming shows. Again, thank you for those. I love getting them. So please, please keep them coming. i received several questions about food reactions. One was from a woman named Sharon, and she was asking, can you address food sensitivities? How and why do you get them? how to best handle them from a supplement perspective and what therapy should be used to correct the food sensitivity situation. Since this is such a big and important topic, I thought I would address the whole topic of food allergies, sensitivities and reactions in this solo episode. I will answer all of these questions, but also probably many, many more that you may have and wanna know about food sensitivities. We will chat about exactly how you can find out if you have them how you can test for them, and even more importantly, what you could do to correct them and finally feel better. In order to fully understand this topic, we first have to make sure that we're on the same page about some terms. The reason why food allergies and sensitivities tend to be such a confusing and sometimes controversial topic is because there is a lot of confusion and misinformation over its diagnosis and management. So let's start with what is an actual food allergy because it has become a very misapplied term. The word allergy means that there is a specific protein in a food that is acting as an antigen, which is essentially something that the body doesn't like, and that is generating an immunologic reaction, and this reaction is very specifically mediated by this protein in the food. So saying that you have an allergy to, say, sugar or an allergy to a certain fat is technically not possible in immunology. However, that doesn't mean that you cannot have a negative reaction or symptom when you eat certain foods, whether they're protein-containing or not. There are other reactions that occur when you eat foods that are not allergies. For instance, lactose intolerance is when someone cannot digest milk properly. But it's technically not correct to say that the person has a milk allergy because technically it's not an allergy but an intolerance. And it means that this person doesn't make the proper amounts of enzymes that are needed to digest milk sugars, which then stays in their stomach and it starts to cause problems. Once foods are ingested they're broken down to different intermediaries. Some of these intermediaries can actually be somewhat toxic and would need to be cleared through our detoxification pathways. If people are deficient in relevant liver enzymes or have any other detoxification issues, they may get a buildup of some of these toxic intermediaries and produce symptoms such as headaches or other negative reactions every time they eat a certain food. This is then also not an allergy, but more of a sensitivity. True protein-mediated food allergies are typically fixed and happen when someone eats a certain food, such as shrimp or peanuts, and they get an immediate anaphylactic shock-type reaction called IgE-mediated reaction. People are usually born with this type of allergy, and the only way to avoid it is to eliminate that food from the diet. This amounts for about 10%. Typically, these reactions happen very quickly, and most people will get symptoms right away within a few minutes to about an hour after consuming that food. The other 90% are considered sensitivities, so they come and go depending on exposure. These types of reactions are usually developed by overexposure to certain proteins combined with bad digestion of that protein and poor intestinal health. So they're more like learned allergies and not true immediate allergies. These reactions can take much longer to show up, anywhere from about an hour to up to 72 hours after exposure. I'll explain what those are and how those happen in just a second. Now, symptoms of food reactions can really be across the board. Some of the most common are dermatological symptoms like rashes and dermatitis, gastrointestinal problems, loss of appetite, malabsorption syndrome created by inflammatory bowel reactions to the offending protein, things like irritable bowel syndrome, colitis, ulcerations, autoimmune phenomena like arthritis, lupus, MS, autoimmune thyroiditis, neurological generation, migraines, anxiety, seizures, asthma, and other respiratory disorders, as well as fatigue and obesity. There's probably many others. I'm just naming some of the big ones you guys may be experiencing. When people first start on their quest to figure out their allergies and sensitivities, they often hit roadblocks and the process can become quite frustrating, leaving them really in a health mystery. It's quite unfortunate and I want to make sure this doesn't happen to you. There are many reasons for this confusion and frustration with the big one being testing for them. If you start with seeing a conventional allergist, the tests that they primarily run depend on a skin prick test. The problem with that is while those are great for contact allergies like dust, dander, and the like, they're not great for foods. First off, we do not stick our food under our skin. It goes in our stomach, which is a completely different environment. But even if we did stick our food under our skin, the only reaction you would see in those skin prick tests is the immediate IgE reaction and it would not show the more prevalent delayed food sensitivities. So when people come in and say that they've already been tested for allergies and they don't have any allergies, if they've only had a skin prick or even if they had a blood test but it was for the IgE reactions, they were tested for their immediate allergies which are way less common and their allergies did not evaluate 90% or more of other reactions. Food sensitivities are what accounts for a much higher percentage of food reactions and are much more common in our society, especially right now. These are typically due to increase of immune dysfunctions. There are a lot of the same types of proteins in our foods because of convenience and processed foods. If you read labels, you'll find that wheat, corn, soy, and dairy are in almost every packaged food. We tend to develop delayed allergies to foods that we're overexposed to day in and day out, and processed foods are the perfect vehicle to deliver these proteins all the time. There is less variability in our diet because of transportation, and while that's very, very convenient, we don't have seasonal foods. If you go to the grocery store, it doesn't matter if it's January or June, we have the same foods to select, and most Americans eat the same foods over and over and over again. However, while repeating the same foods is certainly a big trigger, it's not the only reason. The environment in our gut is another huge trigger and plays a very large role. When we have dysbiosis, which is an overgrowth of bad bugs like bacteria, yeast, and parasites, and which by the way, also goes along with a deficiency in the good bugs, our microbiome becomes skewed. These bugs and microbiome imbalance will create inflammation, which will then open up the tight junctions, which are the spaces between the cells of our gut lining. So if you picture a gate, and this gate can open and close, that is what these tight junctions do. When the gate is wide open, things can come in and out freely, and the same goes for the tight junctions. While we do, of course, want things to be able to absorb through the intestines, the openings for absorption are meant to be teeny tiny so that large proteins can't get in. However, when the tight junctions are open, the openings are very large. Then, when we eat foods, due to various reasons such as toxicity, stress, and nutrient deficiency, just to name a few, we may not produce enough digestive juices. That can look like not producing enough stomach acid in the stomach, which is often caused by stress, or not producing enough bile to emulsify our fats, which could be caused by a weak or toxic liver, or our pancreas may not produce enough enzymes, which could be due to stress, inflammation, and the dysbiosis itself. When we don't break down our food sufficiently, which by the way is super common even in those who don't actually have specific health issues, larger proteins can get into the bloodstream and with the tight junctions open due to inflammation, these proteins get into the bloodstream. There, the body sees them and since the body is really smart and it knows that food belongs in the intestines and not in the bloodstream, it naturally then thinks that the food is a foreign invader and attacks that food. Once the attack occurs, the next time that you eat that food, the body will remember it because the attack already happened, and then an antibody is created, so the attack will continue. So as you can see, when you combine the overuse of certain foods with decline in gastrointestinal health, impaired detoxification, and high stress, the sensitivities become more and more widespread. So what can we do about this? The good thing is there's a lot that we can do. We need to look at our overall body and start with the gut. Since these food reactions are created by the digestive environment, we have to look there first. Sometimes I test for the food sensitivities as we start working on everything, and other times I might wait a month to test and start working on the gut first. The reason for this is that many foods will appear to be issues when the gut is a mess, and it can be a bit misleading and also frustrating to the person. Of course, this is done on a case by case basis, but it's often helpful to see everything else first to see what we're dealing with. So I usually start with doing a stool test to see what's going on in the gut. We then work on cleaning up the gut and eradicating the bad bugs, such as bacteria, yeast, and parasites that we find. While many things are typically customized, there's a few general products that I use for these things with great results. For parasites, I really like the PARA1 and PARA2 from CellCorp. For yeast, I really like Microgon, GI Microbex, and Formula SF722. And for bacteria, I have great results with FC-Cidal and Dysbiocide, along with Tricycline. Oftentimes, people will have a symphony of infections, and we may use these in rotation to get rid of each thing. I've also done a lot of shows on gut balance so you can learn much more specifics. Um, In episode 33, we talk about candida. In episode 12, we get into SIBO. And 23 is all about IBS. So you can get more information from those shows as well. Then after we eradicate the bugs in the gut, I focus on digestion because if we're not breaking things down, food will continue to leak. And even if we avoid the foods we're sensitive to, We still have to eat something, and oftentimes we'll then become sensitive to the other foods that we eat, and it'll be this vicious cycle, which we certainly do not want. Based on the results of the stool test, I can often see if there's too many undigested fats, proteins, or vegetable fibers, as well as someone's ability to produce stomach acid and enzymes. Typically, when digestive issues are present, I see at least one of those deficiencies, though oftentimes it could be all of them. If the pancreas is not producing enough enzymes, I use a combination of pancreatic enzymes as a supplement with meals for a few months. If stomach acid is low, I would use apple cider vinegar with meals for those who are more sensitive, or betaine HCL for those that can better tolerate things. And if fat is an issue, we know there's almost always then problems with bile, and we support the liver and gallbladder and work on thinning out the bile and helping its production with bitters, my favorite is the Bitter X by Quicksilver, and I also sometimes use the LVGB complex and beta-TCP, as well as ox Bio. When we put in the right support for each person, we can really see huge shifts in digestion. Then, after we eradicate the bugs and work on better breaking down our foods, we have to put in the good bugs to replenish what's been lost with probiotics. There are tons of probiotics in the market. Of course, as with anything, some are going to be better than others. I typically recommend ones that are at least 25 billion organisms or more. Otherwise, it's just too weak and something that has a combination of strains. I personally opt for the orthobiotic or the orthobiotic 100 by orthomolecular, probiotic synergy from Designs for Health or 11 strain probiotic from Custom Probiotics. I would not use all of these, but I would typically pick one based on someone's test results or based on their bowel habits, as some probiotics tend to be more beneficial to help move bowels and others help to slow them down. I find the probiotic synergy is great for those who are prone to constipation, for example, and the orthobiotic tends to work great for those who are more on the faster transit time. Around the same time, I also start to heal the gut. This is a bit of a longer process as healing can take several months to up to a year. However, the good news here is that once we start the healing process, by then, most people are already feeling way, way better. So you don't have to wait a year to see results. It just takes a little bit of time to make sure that everything is properly healed. For this, I use GI Revive, which is a combination of several healing herbs and the amino acid glutamine, and I also use short-chain fatty acids. This is crucial, you guys, but it's often forgotten or just not really emphasized enough by other practitioners, which is really unfortunate. Short-chain fatty acids, which are butyrate, propionate, and acetate, are essentially food for the cells in your intestines. We do make them naturally by eating lots of different vegetable fibers, and then the good bacteria that we have in our guts ferment those vegetable fibers to make these important short-chain fatty acids, which then support the gut and play a huge role in healing. The problem, as you could probably guess, is that most people don't eat enough diverse fiber. Even those with a very healthy diet can still have a very limited palate due to food sensitivities. And if our gut has dysbiosis, then we don't have enough good bacteria so our short-chain fatty acids are often low, which will prevent healing. I work on diet to promote this and also use a supplement for a few months to ensure that everything is balanced called Enteravite from Apex Energetics. And by the way, if you're on my practice website, Complete Nutrition and Wellness, you would just need to log into your account to see the Apex products. Otherwise, they're not going to be visible. Once all these things are in place, the bugs are gone, the gut is healed, there should not be any more leaks that would create new sensitivities. And by staying away from the foods for a few months, the immune system calms down and most people are able to introduce their sensitive foods. I recommend doing this one at a time for at least one or two weeks each to see how they feel. While not everyone can start eating everything, as some issues may be genetic, I find that when approached in this matter, most people feel much better in a few months and are able to introduce more of their sensitive foods. Another important thing to address here is how do we properly test for these foods? We had talked about the immediate allergies being IgE, which can be tested through the blood or skin perk, but that those are not good for sensitivities. The reason is that we have many pathways on which a food can react. And these delayed food reactions, which are due to the gut issues, are often reactive on the IgG or the IgA pathway. People often then think, okay, Let me run an IgG or an IgA test. It's a great thought, but the problem is that if you do a test that only tests for IgG, you will only get the food reactions on the IgG pathway. And if you only do the test for IgA, you will then only get the foods that are reacting on your IgA pathway. The other issue is that foods are complex and have many different proteins in them, and as we eat and digest them, they break down into smaller complexes until eventually they should just be individual peptides. So if a food sensitivity is looking at only the food as a whole, it can often miss all of the different breakdown products of that food, which you can be sensitive to. The good news is food sensitivity testing has come a long way from where things were 10 years ago and even five years ago. There was a lot of unknowns then. So it's really, really wonderful. We have a lot better tools now. My go-to test now is one from Vibrant Wellness. What is really neat about their test is they look at both the IgG and the IgA pathway for each food, and they take some of the bigger allergenic foods like gluten, dairy, corn, soy, eggs, and nuts, and they test each food for the whole food plus all of the breakdown products. So for each food, they're testing for over 25 different markers, which gives a much, much more accurate picture about the reaction to that food versus just testing the whole food on one pathway. This has really revolutionized the way I look at food sensitivities. Cyrix is another lab that does a nice job with these, but they don't test for as many foods and they tend to be about twice the price. So that is why Vibrant is my go-to. Right now, the test is only available to my patients. However, we are looking at ways that we can offer this test to all of my listeners and anyone else that may want it through our website, and I will keep you guys posted. You can also email us if you're interested in this test and we could see how we can help you get it done. Well, there you have it. Everything you need to know about food sensitivities and what you can do about them. One topic that I was not able to cover here because I didn't want to throw too many things at you and overwhelm you is more specific issues with gluten. While there are often food sensitivities to gluten, there are a few other important factors that play a role in its case, such as genetics and environmental factors. I will be definitely discussing this in detail and that episode is in production and will be coming out in just a few weeks. So stay tuned. If you found this episode helpful and know someone that can use this information, please share this with them and be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. When it comes to your health issues, please don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.